Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, Hope in the Midst of Suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission, and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing. Friends, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn them on or open the Scriptures to one. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. If you remember, we're trying to uh, read along in whatever device or book you use uh, to read Scriptures. And this just helps you to keep accountable as what we're saying is actually in the Word and also helps us to buy into what God is doing. Can we read the Word of God together? Start at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. What a great way to start church this morning. I know you're feeling encouraged after that. Therefore be alert and of sober minds that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. Everyone say glory. And the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of meddler or criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've got the teenagers in the room. If you're a teenager, give me an early morning grumble. All right, well, you're here somewhere. I know you are. You're trying to disappear. Uh, New Life Youth will be back in coming week's time. But thank you so much for joining us today. And what I'd love to do before we kick off, would you join with me as we pray? Let's pray together. Gracious God, whether we're online or in the room, I just want to great give you glory and praise because you are worthy and there's so much to be thankful for in our day. As we come before your Word today, would you lead us and would you guide us? No matter where we are, or who we are, what we believe, would we sense Your presence and know Your goodness? May Your Word never return void. Holy Spirit, do what only You can. Less of me, more of You. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Friends, I want to start today with a postulation that I believe humanity, humans, that we are what I would call a glory-hungry species. We hunger after glory. If not our own, we hunger to glorify other things and other people. In fact, there was this research done a couple of years ago that found asked a bunch of teenagers, would they prefer to be successful in their own career or would they prefer to be Justin Bieber's personal assistant, right? Now, which one do you reckon they chose? 
Justin Bieber, three to one. People chose, why? Not because they necessarily earned more money, but because they would be closer to fame and glory. Something about people who carry glory attracts us, doesn't it? If I were to tell you that Meryl Streep or Hugh Jackman or Denzel Washington or is the insert your name of famous person in there for yourself was standing in the courtyard right now waiting for you, would you still be here listening to me? Some of you said yes, you lied and that is not the truth. Why? Is it because for some reason they're worth more than me? No, no, no. Well, our society attaches glory to certain individuals and we chase it, don't we? We chase it, we glory in it. We're in grand final season. We're hoping our team will achieve glory up the Lions and the Broncos. It's good to be a Queenslander, amen? If you didn't say amen, go back to New South Wales. You're welcome, that's fine. The Blue State would love to have you home. We seek glory and we also, we, we, we admire people and we hunger for glory for others. In fact, sometimes we glory in things that we shouldn't. And I wanna ask a simple question today, friends. Whose glory are you hungry for? Whose glory are you hungry for? In an age of Instagram, in an age of Facebook, in an age where people can take photos of their feet and get money for it and weird stuff like that, whose glory are you hungry for? In the first service in the 8 a.m., someone shouted out, Jesus! And I'm like, nailed it. If this was Sunday school, you would have gone to the lolly. The problem is, is that most of the Bible friends repeats this line, all for the glory of God. We sing songs, Christ be magnified. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. But friends, you actually know what it means to live for the glory of God. That's what Peter asks us to wrestle with today. And that's what I have a, a weight, a word on my heart for us in this season that God wants to challenge. What are you hungry for? I even had one of my close friends, Calvin, come and share a word with me in worship that I believe God wants to minister to about what we're hungry to glorify in our lives. God is at work here today. Amen. And when Peter jumps in and he says three things to us in this passage, he says, serve well, suffer well, and do it all for the glory of God. So we're going to land on glory, but let's start with serving. Peter begins in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. What does he say? The end of all things is near. So be alert and of sober mind so you may pray. The end of all things is near. What strikes you when you hear Peter talk like that? You know what strikes me? I'm reminded of walking through Surface Paradise and those guys holding the placards or Brisbane City or wherever you're from. Do you know the guys I'm talking about, right? It's got like burning hell on the front of it. And they're like, turn or burn. And like some reason you're like, I don't know if we are a part of the same faith or anything thing like that. When Peter talks like this, it feels like Peter's like this pessimistic doomsday guy. And we're like, Peter, where did you get off, man? You were writing 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is not near Peter. It didn't come. But actually, Peter's not wrong in what he's writing. The word for is near is this Greek word, which kind of is referenced as if you were seeing a ship approaching over the horizon. There was nothing there. Then suddenly you see something and it's drawing near to you. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know how far off it is, but you know the direction is heading towards you. And Peter's saying this saying something has shifted in the world with the, with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Things are coming to an end. He's not being apocalyptic. He's not trying to induce fear. 
No, Peter's doing something else. In a couple of weeks' time, a man named John Tyson is actually going to be here preaching on Sunday and then at Exponential Conference. And John Tyson has this great idea, this great line that he says. He says this, the clock determines the play. The clock determines the play. Now, you know I'm not a sports person. Um, I, I've said this a couple of times. Some of you have played sports with me since then and been like, wow, you weren't lying. I wasn't. But I do know one thing. When I was watching the grand final, not the grand final, the preliminary final yesterday with uh, the Lions versus Carlton, they play differently in the first quarter than they do in the last quarter. In the first quarter, it's a lot more long play strategy, like let's play the full game. But when it's the last three minutes of that preliminary final, Carlton and the Lions play differently. Why? Because the clock's ticking down. The play is different. They're doing more Hail Marys. They're playing more aggressive. They're trying to play a different sort of game. Why? Because the end is near. And, and the clock determines the play. And if we were to believe that the end is near, whether it's a thousand years of the future or whatever, we are in these times where things are coming to a close. What Peter's saying is, so how do we live if the end is near? Now, I want to take a shot at the season of COVID. I realise we haven't talked about it a lot as a church and this might offend some people, but COVID was this weird moment where I think people spoke about the end in ways Peter doesn't. People were like, well, the world's in pandemic, shut down, the government's trying to control everybody. It is the end times right now. And we, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this like Christian response where it induced fear in each other. Do you remember this? And it was like this overwhelming sense of worry Peter doesn't say the end is near so that we can all live, you know, with a worry and start diving into conspiracy theories and wondering who's actually in control of the world. Peter says the end is near with bold, calm confidence. Why? Because he knows what it means. He knows who's coming. He knows the victory has been won. This isn't a moment to be afraid. It's a moment for Christians to step up. And so friends, we're not talking about some apocalyptic conspiracy theory right now. We're talking about how do we live if we know Jesus is on His way home? to redeem. Peter is simple. He doesn't say, so be afraid, believe in weird ideas about what the government's doing. No, no, no. He says this, be alert and sober-minded and you, so that you may pray. When a soldier is on the front lines and the battle is raging around them, the most important line of communication is with headquarters. Hey, what's going on? I, there's all this stuff playing out around me. What do I need to know so I know how to act on the field? This is what Peter's talking about. Keep in touch with heaven. Don't listen to the worry of the world. What is God up to and what's God doing right now? We don't need to worry about if God's coming back tonight or if Jesus is coming back in a thousand years time. What we need to worry about is God, what are you up to right now and how can I get involved? That's what Peter's saying. And he speaks to two ways that we should be living if the end is near. He talks about how do we live in community? How do we serve each other well? And then how do we walk through difficulty? How do we walk through pain? And, and what happens in these next verses, in verse 8 onwards, Peter actually begins talking about what should the church look like if this is true? What should the church look like? And there'll be a slide on the screen with a table behind me. 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 4, from verse 7 to 11, is actually very similar to Romans chapter 12, where Peter and Paul, it's almost like one of them copied the other where they go, hey, you know, love one another, be praying, be hospitable, serve each other. And it's almost as if Peter and Paul, one of them's read the other's letter and be like, I'm going to copy what you said. But actually what most theologians believe is that there was an understanding in the early church around what the church should be like. And Peter and Paul just kept repeating it. They didn't copy from each other. Everyone agreed the early church should look like something. Everyone agreed Christian community should look like something. 
And this is what Peter steps into. What does it mean for us to be a people who serve each other well? Peter says this, Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray for above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter echoes words that he'd heard on the last night Jesus was betrayed. John 13, 35, Jesus turns to his disciples and what does he say? They will know you are my disciples by your Great, Courtney Lush, our youth pastor, nailed it. The rest of us, a little slow on the uptake. They will know your disciples by my? Right, this side, nailing it, the wings, come on. They will know you're my disciples by my? Love. I was hoping the whole church together it gets confusing. We're not gonna keep going. By, my, by your love for one another. They will know you're my disciples. And Peter reinforces this. says, so above all, love each other deeply. And here's the question. If this is what the church should be marked by when the end is drawing near, friends, is this how new life is marked? When people walk into our courtyard, do people go, there's love here. I feel at home. I feel like I belong. Timothy Keller would say it like this. Community is more than just the result of the preaching of the gospel. It is itself a declaration and expression of the gospel. Peter's saying, you can talk about Jesus' death for sin as much as you want. But if we are not marked by love for one another, then the gospel is not alive amongst us. We can talk about people being included, people finding home, that the sinner, the lost, the last and least are welcome here. But if they're not welcomed by us, we have missed it. Too many people these days, friends, say, Michael, the New Life Courtyard, it's such a cold place. Have you ever heard this? People don't talk to one or something like, I haven't. That's awesome. But this thing that grieves so much of my heart is, is when we, we hear people reflect on the nature of our community, on the nature of how we care for one another. And who's, whose role is it, the temperature of our love? It's not the pastor's role. For we are the ministry of all believers. We are the priesthood of all believers, friends. This is us. How are we known by our love for one another? Can I just say, a man grabbed me just before I jumped up to preach, before the service started. He said, Michael, we've just moved here. And he said, we've never felt so welcomed in a church. The last six weeks, all we've felt is cared for and loved. And I was so proud to hear that because I hadn't done anything. It'd been done by the people of our church. Before the uh, last service in our 8 a.m., a lady came and said, Mark, you need to know my son died a couple of weeks ago, but it was the people of this church who came and helped me unpack his house, ship things away, and actually cried and mourned with me in the difficulty of this place. And I was like, this is what love looks like. Love is not sitting in a seat on a Sunday. It's texting and reaching out throughout the week. It's caring for one another. So the non-Christians, when they step into this place, they go, I want to be a part of this. Peter goes on in verse 9 and he says, Offer hospitality without grumbling. Can I get a grumbled amen from all the introverts in the room? Amen. I come home and my wife's like, Michael, these people are coming over for lunch. I'm like, why did you not ask me first? 
Peter's talking about a different way to live. Back in those days, Christians used to travel around. And as they traveled, they may not have had a lot of money on their missionary travels or on their, their ministry journeys or maybe just visiting family. But what they, this culture became built up that any Christian could rock up in a town and find the local church and someone in that local church would have a bed or food for them without grumbling. Or maybe they started to grumble. And Peter's like, guys, remember, we don't grumble. And I just wonder if someone's to rock up here today from overseas and talk to you and say, hey, I've got no, like I'm just visiting. I've got nowhere to stay tonight. You know where I'd go? Can I see your blue card, please? Which is actually probably really helpful if you've got kids in your home. But we, we start to go, I don't know you. And we're like, oh, let, let me put you in contact with someone else. And we make it someone else's problem. But I believe hospitality is such a sign of the gospel. We should be people with full homes and full tables. Recently at conference, Kerry and Alan, who are joining us right now from St. George, um, they came, they texted me about six weeks earlier, being like, Michael, we're coming to conference. We're driving seven hours from St. George. Can you find us somewhere to stay? And I was like, yep, 100%. And in great Michael fashion, I completely forgot about it. So the last session of conference happened and then they came up to me like, hey, Michael, we're here. Um, where are we staying tonight? And I'm like, I don't know. This is so good. My wife, I was like pregnant. Like we thought the baby might come on that day. So I'm like, I don't know if you want to be in my house. But here's the best part. I thought of three couples straight away who I went and approached after conference. I said, guys, can I have some people stay at your house tonight? And immediately they were like, oh yeah, we'll shift things. They can come stay with us. Brad and Cheryl Foote said, we'll take them out for dinner. And I looked at this community who coped with my disorganisation and my lack of an ability to plan ahead and they just stepped in because we're hospitable. But sometimes we don't do these things. We don't join small groups. We don't rock out in community. We don't talk to people because we don't want to talk to that guy. We prefer to hang out with that guy. And what we, we, we cling to this idea of community in our head and hospitality. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, the person... The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Friends, some of you have chosen not to join a small group because you're not sure you'll like the one you're put in. Some of you maybe say this at New Life, I like New Life, there's just no one like me here. Have you ever thought that maybe God's positioned you here, not because everyone's like you, but that you might learn to love those He's got around you? Who was like Jesus? Do you see Jesus rock up at dinner and be like, there's no one really like me here. Like, where are all the messiahs and the sons of God? Like, I want to talk about turning water into wine and like having trips across the lake of Gethsemane. I don't want to hang out with y'all. Like, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, not because they were his people. He made them his people. And I just want to challenge friends, how can we be a church that is known not just for loving others, but eating with others? When was the last time you turned to your partner, significant other, or even just your house, your roommates, and say, clear the calendar this Sunday, I'm going to church and I'm bringing someone home for lunch with me, with their permission. <laughs> and why don't we do it more often? People should be coming to church for the first time and have a Sunday roast that they're heading to straight after church because we are a people of hospitality and we are a people who don't only love others, not only eat with others, we also serve others really well. Peter goes on and he says this in the next verse. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it so with strength that God provides so that in all, all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And, and here's, here's what Peter's getting at. He's actually talking about when you're a Christian, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, puts special gifts in each of us that, that are supernatural gifts. 
And it's a beautiful thing. There are people in this room who are given a gift of prophecy, of words of knowledge, the gift of tongues or interpretation of tongues, gifts of faith and healing. And these gifts have been given to the people of God that we might build up the people of God and encourage one another. Now, I just want to lay this claim and say, we as a church have not always done everything we could to teach and train our people in spiritual gifts. And I want us to get better at that. That you might know how God has uniquely gifted you and equipped you to be the people of God. But Paul here is, Peter, sorry, Paul's another guy. Peter wasn't just talking about supernatural gifts. He says, if you speak, do so with whatever God's saying. But he says, but if you also serve, if you're doing things that maybe aren't about the miraculous speaking gifts, but the gifts of hospitality, of service, of administration, do it in such a way that God praises people. What's he encouraging? He's assuming that if people are Christians and followers of Jesus, they serve those around them. Friends, we have about 3,000 people that call New Life home and only about um, uh, just over 600 people uh, like serve regularly. Which, and most of those 600 people are like, there's, there's probably more like 400 because most of those 600 people are actually the same person serving three or four times. And the problem with that is, is that the, it means the majority of people that call New Life home don't own what New Life is. We love rocking up with car park attendance on Sundays or to a full kid's life ministry, but that's someone else's problem. We, we, we love the fact that Fiona Gregory is offering us kisses and cuddles as the Connect team comes in the front door, which you know, you know, I've never seen you do, Fiona, but it's fantastic that you're offering that stuff. But that's someone else's job. We, we jump online. We love being a part of the online team, but, or the online community, but we never really thought about, hey, what does it mean for us to serve in this space? The problem with this is, is, is that actually Christ expects Jesus. Peter says, this is a marker of Christian community. When I was young and we had dinner and people around our house, I always knew the people who were truly at home with us, who truly belonged in our family. Because when the meal was done, we'd all head to the kitchen to wash up. And I always knew those people who were really one of us because they picked up a tea towel. They were family. I just want to ask, friends, is it time for some of us to pick up a tea towel? Now, for those of you who are young mothers, for those of you who have families or this difficult dynamics, maybe some of you will come here, you're new to church or you're healing from a church experience or you're a new Christian. Friends, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of us who we call new life home. And I just sense it's time. Someone once said to me, yes, but Michael, um, with my qualifications, I don't know if car park is really the place I would serve. And I kind of want to ask, what kind of qualifications do you think the car park people have? Like they went to a TAFE degree and they actually got like special waving. And they're like, you know, here we are. These are like former businessmen, millionaires, some of them. Some of them are uh, entrepreneurs and doctors and all, and they're rocking up on a Sunday, not because that's their certification. It's because we need someone to do it. Friends, I just want to ask, how are you serving the body of Christ? And maybe, maybe it's time to get off the bench and know community and belong and own what God is doing here. How are you loving others? How are you eating with others? How are you serving others? Why do we do these things? Because this catch cry line, it's so confusing that Peter says, so to Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. We do these things so God might be glorified. Here it is again. Why is God so obsessed with His glory? Is He insecure? Is God like, guys, does everyone love me? Can someone please worship me? I'm not quite sure how I'm doing on the throne. No, not at all. But let's get there in a second. 
Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 12, and we finish this thought. Peter says, don't only serve well, he says, suffer well. Suffer well. What does Peter say? He says, do not be surprised. Dear friends, do not be surprised when a fiery ordeal has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. Have you ever been surprised? I get surprised every morning when I look in the mirror. I'm like, oh, right. I don't look like Brad Pitt. True story. But there's this moment when my wife and I were married in our early years. And, uh, you know, my vision of marriage was that, like, we'd get together and uh, it would be amazing. And whoever got home first would put dinner on and, like, prepare the house. And when I got home, I was, like, aircon on, nice music and, you know, putting dinner on. So she'd walk into the nice aromas. I was so excited for, like, the first day when I got home. Um, and, and, she would, and, and she would have been there before me. Like, you know, I, I've, I've set the standard. I can't wait to see what it's going to be like. I walked in. There's nothing. The house is completely silent. Like, sweetheart, nothing. And I start walking around the house and I work out, she's hiding from me. And Sarah got in her mind that actually the funnest part about marriage was that you could surprise each other when you got home. And so for the first six weeks of our marriage, I would like walk around the house with like sweaty hands and my heart palpitating, wondering where the heck my wife was about to hop out from. And I'd finally think, oh, maybe she's gone from a walk and then I'd open like the toilet cupboard. She's like, like, ah! through better or for worse, right? Like it's like this moment. But it came a moment, remember we clicked like five or six weeks in, we're like, hey honey, and there was nothing. I'm like, yeah, I know what this is. All right, let's start systematically working through the house. Cupboard, no. Bathroom, no. Then she'd jump out, she'd go, I'd be like, ah, got me again. So we don't do it anymore. Why? Because it was no longer surprising because I was expecting it. I was expecting it. And what Peter's saying here, guys, who taught you life wouldn't have pain? Some of you are like, I never knew life would be hard. Where did this suffering thing come from? As if the human experience for the last couple thousand years hasn't been suffering. And as if Jesus himself said, you will have trouble in this world. Take heart for I have overcome the world. And Peter's just saying, guys, don't be surprised. We live in a broken world with sin. There will be pain. But don't be surprised for God's using it to test you. Now, this isn't like pass or fail. God's not going, did he cry when that bad thing happened? Yes, fail. Like, not at all. God wants our grief. God wants our tears. God wants the things that are difficult for us to be brought before him. What the test means is God is using it to actually see how strong our faith is and make it stronger with the areas of impurities in our life. When you take, when a blacksmith um, wants to purify metal, he takes it and boils it or, or melts it, doesn't boil it, clearly not a blacksmith, melts it down over a fire. And as you can see, this is like a raging furnace fire behind me right here. And as the furnace and as the fire melts the metal down, what happens? The impurities come to the top. And so he's testing the metal. So the impurities rise to the top and he scoops the impurities out. How does the blacksmith know when the metal is purified? When he can see his image clearly in the surface. God doesn't want the evil that has happened in this world, but God has chosen to redeem the evil in this world by using the suffering to purify and test our faith. Some of you are walking through horror right now, tragedy. And for a preacher to stand up the front and be like, God's using it to test you. Yeah, it's like, what kind of person are you here, Michael? But I want to challenge you with this. Name me one person in your life you deeply respect and admire that you gain wisdom from that hasn't walked through profound suffering. And when we allow God to redeem it, that suffering forms us because what's outlined? More people, more like. Next line, what does he say? Rejoice in your sufferings. 
but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. We want to be like Him, but we want to do the water to wine stuff, the walking on water stuff, and we forget that Jesus walked through pain. He wept at a tomb of His friend. He was betrayed by those he should have confided in. He knew what it meant to cry out to God with anxiety gripping his heart. He knew what it meant to walk through moments when unspeakable healing and suffering was laid out before him. He knew what it meant to be overwhelmed by betrayal and grief. The Saviour that we follow is not a man that doesn't know suffering. When we suffer, we actually understand and have an opportunity to be more like Christ than ever for He knows suffering, He knows pain and He also can guide us and lead us through it. And when the world watches us walk, not without tears, but filled with tears, when the world watches us grieve, but not lose hope, when the world watches us stand firm in the midst of a storm we can't control because there is one who is holding us firm, it looks and goes, how do you suffer so well? And we have a moment to point to the one who holds us. See, this is what Peter's whole aim is. Serve well, suffer well. And in all things, glorify God. When I hear someone say glorify God, I don't know about you, or that the key motivation of our life, because maybe you're sitting going, but why, Michael? Why would I serve others? Why would I suffer well? Why wouldn't I just complain? Why, Michael, what is the key motivation behind all of these things? What do I gain? And, and here's the answer. The key motivation is this, that we want to glorify God. And I get that that for some of you is like, sandpaper on your tongue. You're like, what? That does, I'm not doing that. Why would I want to glorify God? Friends, we all glorify something. And the glory of God has lost its meaning, its weight and its presence in the church. See, the Bible, not only in verse 11, says to us, in all things, glorify. In all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. It's not like when Kevin strums the first note of the song, then you start glorifying God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. When you parent your children, when you're dating that person, when you're walking in singleness, when you're going to work, when you're driving your car, do it all for the glory of God. And part of me cries out is this guy who grew up in Australia. I'm well-versed in tall poppy syndromes. Like who thinks they're better than they are? Let's cut them down. Like that's who we are. And God's sitting up there and be like, glorify me. I'm like, hang on God, where do you get off? But we've missed what glory is. See, glory in Hebrew is actually the word kabod. In, in Greek, it's doxa. And they both mean the same thing. Glory means weight. To know the glory of something is to experience the weight of that thing. And friends, you've all experienced this because you've all seen a sunset, right? And now you would have to be a really tip, like certain kind of person to look at the most beautiful sunset ever and be like, meh, seen other things that are cooler than this. Like when you see a sunset, right? You sit there and like most people, like they stop. They're like, oh, check out the sunset. Some of you pull out your phones, you're taking photos. Why? Because the glory of what is happening before you are so like, oh my gosh, I saw a sunset today. You tell people about it. Why? Because the beauty is too magnificent. It's too amazing. You can't keep it to yourself. You feel the full weight of the beauty. 
We think that the glory of God is this like punitive thing of God being better than everyone and prating it around in pride. No, the glory of God is to understand the full weight and majesty of who He is and live your life in response. There's intrinsic glory, God's character, that He is just, He is kind, He is loving, He is slow to anger and quick to love. This is the glory of God. Then it's His actions. He's the extrinsic glory where He redeems, He saves, He judges the wicked and redeems those who call upon His name. These are the things that point to the glory of God. And the reason why the Bible says do all things for God's glory is not because He needs it. It's because we need it. We need to be reminded that there is something better to live for than anything else in this world. A.W. Tozer says like this, God is looking for a man or woman in whose hands His glory is safe, in whose hands understands the weight of who He is. We rock up and we serve, we love, we eat with others, we suffer well, that the world would look at us and they would see a mini sunset. They would stop and go, whoa, something beautiful is happening in your life. And we go, oh, I've got to show you the one who is beautiful. I mean, something's beautiful happening in, in my coworker. Like they're just, they're handling things differently. I'm just a mini version of the great thing. Kevin DeYoung says it like this. We glorify God when we throw a spotlight on how great God is. To glorify God is to make much of Him as a mother makes much of her daughter when she fusses and frets over. To glorify God is to magnify the greatness of His character, not as a microscope magnifies by making small objects look larger, but as a telescope magnifies by giving us a glimpse of things that are unimaginably big. And here's here's the conviction I have in our heart. We struggle to glorify God because we have stopped encountering the glory of God. When was the last time you encountered His beauty? When was the last time you experienced His presence? When was the last time where you just had to stop and go, God, I have fallen short of who You are. This is why Romans 3 verse 23 says, this is sin for all have fallen short of the what? Of the, of the, of the glory of God. The glory is not some standard we attain to, it's a beauty we get to reflect that we carry His character, we carry His actions, we live as He lived, we try and reflect who He is, that the world would look at us and see Him. But for, for them to see Him in us first, we have to see Him ourselves. Friends, do you know the glory of God? As I sat preparing at my dinner table yesterday, just writing this sermon, I was overwhelmed with the Romans 3.23 nature of my life how common it is for me to fall short of God's glory and how long it had been since I had tasted His goodness. And at that dinner table, I just sensed the presence of God just descend upon me like I hadn't in a long time. I started weeping and weeping at His beauty and weeping at how how lacking my life has been of reflecting His goodness. And then I had a hunger I don't want to pastor a church where I just talk and people listen. I want to attend and be a part of a people who are hungry for the glory of God. Who I can stand next to and we can weep as we encounter His beauty together. Who we can kneel together and pray for one another and believe that He is infinitely better and more worthy and deserving of anything than we could possibly hope or imagine. 
And when we forget it, when we forget the glory, here's where we look. Because the character and action of God was fully made manifest where? In a full cross that became empty and a full tomb, that tomb that, were, that became empty. In an empty cross, in an empty tomb, we see the glory of God, that He is good, that He is loving, that He is kind, that He is just and judges, but He also redeems and He saves. And when I forget that, I look at the cross and I remember I am who I am because God is filled with glory. And friends, maybe you're here today, you don't know that the glory of God is this. You are far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine and deserve. And He calls your name. When you fell short of God's glory, do you wanna know what God's glory did? It came to chase you down. Come see the sunset again. Come see His beauty. Let that be what we respond to. May we live for the glory of God. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.